through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You matter to God. Those three words, those four words, you matter to God, those make up one of the most important ideas that you and I could ever contemplate. You matter to God. He cares about you. He thinks about you. He loves you. And all of those things, because those are true, they ought to change our lives. We use the word grace to describe the fact and the idea that we matter to God. We use God's word grace because the Bible uses that word. The idea that we matter to God, that he cares about us, it has to do with, the word grace does, his blessings. And every one of us this week, whether you're a Christian or not, every one of us this past week has enjoyed the grace of God in some way. Grace is as simple sometimes as the air that we breathe and the food that we eat. The Bible speaks about God filling our hearts with food and gladness, Acts 14, verse 17. The Bible speaks about God causing the sun to rise on the good and the evil, to cause the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. And all of us this week have enjoyed sunshine and rain, haven't we? It's the blessing of God, the grace of God that causes that to happen. The fact that we live in a world that we didn't build and we enjoy blessings that we don't deserve, all of those things are manifestations of God's concern and care for all of us. You matter to God. But it's also true that the Bible uses the word grace not just in a general sense, sun and rain and food and things like that, but the Bible also uses the word grace in a special sense to describe the salvation that God provides and he does that exclusively through Jesus Christ. Only in Christ can we enjoy the blessings that God really intends for all of us. Because we matter to God, God has set forth his son. He has sent him to die for us so that we could have a relationship with him. And that's grace too. And most people that live in this world miss out on the saving grace of God. And there are three broad reasons why this is true. While everybody might enjoy the sunshine and the rain and the food and the air that we breathe, that sense of God's grace in their lives, the idea that we matter to God, that he has provided for us in those ways, not everybody enjoys and knows the grace of God that's found in Jesus Christ. Why do people miss out? Some people miss out because they're living their lives in a constant pursuit of pleasure. We call it hedonism. The idea that I'm going to live my life and I'm going to enjoy it to the fullest and I don't care who God is. I have no interest in knowing my creator. I have no interest in understanding more about him. I don't care. 
And there are people who live their lives that way and they'll never know the saving grace of God while they persist in that mindset. Other people, and sometimes even religious people, they are full of self-righteousness, self-assurance. And typically this has to do with looking around at other people and just thinking, you know what? When, I, when I'm comparing myself to everybody else, when I compare myself to the people I see on the news, I'm doing pretty good. And so we think there's nothing wrong with me. I don't need any help from God. I'm thankful, I guess, for the, for the things he provides, but I don't need anything more from him. Studies have shown that the average person believes that he's better than the average person. Think about that for a little while. The average person thinks he's doing better than the average person. Most people think, I'm doing great. Life is good. And even sometimes religiously, we may confess that, yeah, I needed Jesus in my past. I needed him back when I was a sinner, but I don't need him now. Yes, you do. The grace of God, you matter to God, and you're going to miss out on grace if you're full of yourself and you don't think you need him. You don't think there's anything wrong. Nothing really needs to change in my life. You're going to miss God's grace. And then a third way to miss grace. Many people are filled with a sense of what I'm going to call overwhelming guilt. Overwhelming guilt. I have done things and I've said things and I've thought things and I've been involved in things that I just don't believe God would ever forgive who would who would want to know somebody like me who would want to want to love somebody like me and we're going to miss God's grace as well unless listen to me here unless we really believe that what God says in his word is true he loves you you matter to him and no matter what you've done or where you've been or what you've been involved in, God wants you to know him and to know his grace because you matter to him. Open your Bibles this morning to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And if you want an outline of the lesson this morning, it's right there in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. Speaking about the grace that God wants every one of us to possess. The blessings that he intends for all of us that can only be found in Jesus Christ. And I want you just to kind of give a little bit, little bit of background. I want you, before you get into Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 1, to just back up a few verses. And I want you to see what Paul is doing for his brethren here. In Ephesians chapter 1, he is praying for his brethren. And part of his prayer... Part of the thing that he's asking for his brethren, he's asking God for this. He's praying that their eyes might be opened, that they might be enlightened to some things. So here's an apostle praying for the church. He's praying for his brethren. And one of the things he prays to God about is he prays, God, I pray that my brethren might know what is the exceeding greatness of your power toward us who believe. In other words, Paul's praying for the church, and one of the things he's asking for is that the church would understand and know the exceeding greatness of God's power, according to, on the basis of the working of his mighty power. And so he's saying, God, I pray that my brethren would understand how powerful you are. 
I pray that the church might understand how much you love us and how much you care about us and how much you are able to do with us and through us and in us. I pray that the church would have a better conception of those things. And then he gives two examples of the power of God. Example number one is found in verses 20 through 23. God took Jesus Christ, who had been crucified, and raised him from the dead and seated him in the heavenly places. That's powerful. We are worshiping and serving and looking to a God who can raise Jesus from the dead. It's an example of his power. And if God could do that, think of what he could do in our lives if we'd let him. And then the second example of God's power is what we're reading this morning in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. Just like God raised Jesus from the dead, look at what he can do with your life. Look at what he's done. If you're a member of the church, if you've already been if you've already been saved by the grace of God, look at what he has done in your life. Verses 1 through 3, even though you were dead in your sins and trespasses, he's raised us up and seated us together with Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 7. By grace you're saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is God's gift to you. Ephesians 2, verse 8. So, this section of Scripture is part of Paul explaining how powerful God is, how life-changing God is. He can raise Jesus from the dead. He can raise us spiritually from the dead as well. And if he can do those things, imagine what else he can do if we'd put our trust in him and if we'd have confidence in his power and his grace. Don't miss out on the grace of God this morning. What Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 does is it gives us three dynamic pictures that help us to appreciate the grace of God in our lives. Not just the food and the sun and the rain that God provides, but these pictures help us to provide what God, to appreciate what God has done for us in Christ. How God cares about you. Picture number one, if you're looking at Ephesians chapter two this morning, notice verses one through three. Let's just read together. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the course, uh, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience among whom we also all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature, it says in verse 3, children of wrath, just as the others. First, there's a picture of us. You know, most of us, if we you know, stop people on the street, what do you think about sin? What do you think about immorality? Most people, I mean, they might say, well, if it, if it hurts somebody or if it makes me angry, then I'm against it. But otherwise, it's not that big a deal. For most people, sin is not that big of a deal. It's just not. Unless it somehow impacts me personally, I don't really care. But what we need to do is take God's assessment because what verses 1 through 3 do is they give us God's assessment of what we're like when we're lost. And notice there are three terms that we ought to think about. In the first place, when you are lost, when you are apart from Jesus Christ and the saving grace that's only found in him, you are, according to verse 1, dead. Not like the princess bride, the movie, 
This guy is only mostly dead. No, you are all dead. That is to say, by virtue of, look at the verse, verse 1, the sins and the trespasses in our lives, we are rendered dead. If you walk up and grab hold of a power line with 10,000 volts running through it, you're going to be all dead. No life left in you. And if you commit sin, if you commit a trespass, by the way, those two terms, to sin means that I'm aiming for something good, but I missed the mark. And to trespass means that I know this is out of bounds, but I'm stepping over the line anyway. And when we do that, it's like grabbing that 10,000 volt power line and spiritually we die. And what can a dead person do for themselves? The only thing a dead person does is lay there. Somebody else has to come and take their body and to treat it and to get it ready for burial. A dead person doesn't do anything for himself. And God is saying, when you were lost, you were dead in your sins and trespasses. Oh, but not just that. He goes on to say in verses 1 and 2 that you are also disobedient. You are disobedient. Those of you who are parents... Does it make you upset when your kids, they know something is wrong, they know something is against the rules, but they look at you. You know what I'm talking about. They look at you to see if you're watching, and then they do it. What are you going to do about it, mom and dad? Disobedience. Does it upset you when that happens? God is saying, when you're lost, you're disobedient. I've got a plan for you. I've got a will for you. And you have done something different. And there are three influences that are going to cause us to live this disobedient lifestyle. Notice the Bible says the world is an influence. He speaks about walking according to the course of this world. You know, the world is going to pressure you to do some things that maybe you wouldn't have done on your own, things that you wouldn't have thought and, and, and things that you wouldn't have practiced. But the world has an influence. We call it peer pressure. And you've given in. You knew it was out of bounds. You knew it was sin, but you went ahead and did it and you're disobedient because the world has got an influence on you. Not just the world, but the prince of the power of the air, the devil. He's active. He's alive. He's alive. He's working in this world. You don't see him, but you know when he's around and when he's active because everybody can kind of recognize where the devil's been at work. Everybody kind of knows just almost instinctively, this is wrong, this is evil. You can even hear worldly people talking about things. I know it was wrong. I know it was evil, but I did it anyway. We're disobedient because we listen to the influences that come from the devil and from those who support what he's all about. And we also are disobedient because of what's going on inside of us, because of our own desires, the lusts of your flesh, Paul talks about. It's what I wanted. It's what I felt like. I desired it, and so I went after it, and I did it. And that's why I disobeyed God, because the world influenced me, because the satanic influences in this world influenced me, and because my own passions and my own desires influenced me. Those things brought about a spirit of disobedience. And, by the way, the Bible speaks about us walking in these things. You see it? You walked in them. That is, it was kind of fun. Because there always is some fun, some joy involved in sin. It just is. And because it was kind of fun, I kept doing it. 
and I got pretty good at it. And the apostle is saying you were dead in your sins and trespasses because of that disobedience and that disobedient spirit. And then in verse 3, it speaks about how we are doomed. This is God's assessment. When you're lost, sin is a big deal. When you're lost and outside of Christ, you are dead, you are disobedient, and you are doomed. The future that you have to anticipate is one of eternal torment in a place that the Bible refers to as hell. Matthew 20, excuse me, Matthew 25 and verse 46. The Bible speaks about the wrath of God being upon those who are disobedient. And so God paints a very bleak picture here because this is what he sees when he looks at us when we're lost. He says, you're like a lifeless body and you are disobedient, just like a child that is looking at his parent and saying, I don't care what you think. What are you going to do about this? And then our only future, our only hope, there is no hope, is to be doomed and lost. And in order for us to appreciate what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, we've got to let those three words sink down deeply into our hearts and to let us understand this is what we were before Jesus came and saved us. So a picture of ourselves. The second picture, as you look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 7, is a picture of God's power. Because remember, that's what Paul is doing. He's praying that his brethren might have their eyes open to how much power is available if we would just trust God, if we would just pray to God, if we would just give ourselves to God. Imagine what he is able to do. He is a powerful God. He could raise Jesus from the dead and watch what he can do. In verses 4 through 7, he can raise you and me from the dead. Look at verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy... Because of his great love with which he loved us. Now just stop right there. You matter to God. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4, if there were no other words about God's love, is final. Ephesians 2 verse 4, God loves us. And his motivation in sending Jesus to die for us is because he cares for us. He loves you. You matter to him, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. John chapter 3, verse 16. You matter to him because he's rich in mercy and because of the great love with which he loved us. Watch what he did. Look at verse 5. Even when we were dead in trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And God raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What has God done in his great power? His past action. Paul's talking to Christians, people who have obeyed the gospel. People who have already come to Jesus and submitted their lives to his will. And he says, here's what he's done for you. He has made you alive with Christ. Just like Jesus, his body was in that tomb. On the third day, God raised up Jesus Christ by his magnificent power. And you know what the Bible teaches about being raised up? Baptism matters. Baptism doesn't matter because I think it does or because somebody else thinks it does. Baptism matters because God says it does. 
Baptism is the point at which someone who is dead in their sins and trespasses is buried with Christ. Romans 6 verse 4. And baptism is the point at which a person who has been buried with Christ is raised with Christ. Ephesians 6, or excuse me, Romans 6 verses 4 and 5. Baptism matters. Because what's happening is I'm coming to God and I'm saying I'm dead in my sins and my trespasses. And God, I need you to make me alive with Christ. And God, because of his great love and because of his great mercy toward you and me, says, I'll do that for you. Be buried with Christ. And notice the language even here in Ephesians chapter 2. Although baptism is not necessarily in view, look at what it says. You were made alive together with Christ, verse 5. And then you are raised up together with Christ. And then it says we are seated together with Christ in the heavenly places. All of that in verses 5 and 6, God made us alive. God raised us up with Christ. And God seated us with Christ. God who is rich in mercy and who cares about you, this is what he wants to do in your life. If you're not a Christian, this is what God wants to happen in your life. He wants you to be buried with Christ and he wants you to be raised with Christ. A new creation. He's going to get to that in Ephesians 2 verse 10. A new creation, God's workmanship. He wants to start over with you. And he wants your life to know and to enjoy the riches of his grace. All right, heavenly places, what is that? Back in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, the Bible tells us that every spiritual blessing is available to us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What's the heavenly places? Think about it this way. When I was younger, my brother and I did a lot of flying. My dad lived in a different state, and so spring break and summer vacation, we would go and we would fly to visit my dad. And as we would get on the plane, we always flew coach, always. I mean, that's just what you do with a 13, 14, 15-year-old. You fly coach. Well, there was this one time when my brother and I, we were, we were bumped off of a flight because it was overbooked. And you know what the airline did for us? They put us in first class. A first class flight from Dallas to Phoenix. It was one of the greatest moments of my young teenage life. Because you know what happens in first class, even on a domestic flight? You sit down in seat 1A and 1B. And while everybody else is getting on the plane, the stewardess comes up and says, would you like something to drink? And I was thinking, really? Before the plane takes off? This is great. And for the next two hours, my brother and I probably drank a gallon of Dr. Pepper. Because that's what you do in first class. And what's also good about first class is you're only eight feet from the restroom. And it's only for use in people in first class. And so it's rarely occupied and it's great. Everything They bring you a hot towel when you're getting ready to land. None of that happens back in the back where we were used to riding. First class. You've been seated in first class, if you will. Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. He ascended to the right hand of his Father's throne. He reigns there even now, ever making intercession for us. Hebrews 7, verse 25. 
And when you and I are raised spiritually from the dead, God seats us together with Jesus Christ so that, watch this, here's the key in verse 7, so that, verse 7 says, in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. When you read verse 7, I want you to think of being in first class on an airplane. You have access to blessings that you would never otherwise have access to because of what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. He has raised us up and he has seated us with Christ so that for the purpose that he might continually show his kindness toward you in Christ Jesus. Every time God answers a prayer, every time God blesses you when you don't deserve it, and you never do, by the way. Every time God in his providence works things together for good and helps to make you more like Christ, he is showing his kindness toward you in Christ Jesus. And throughout your life as a Christian, it's a, it's a tough life. Everybody has a tough life. But it's a life that is continually blessed by the kindness and riches of God, according to this passage and why is it that way? Because I've been seated together with Christ in the heavenly places. And that's where I have access to every spiritual blessing. The family that we enjoy because of the fact that we're Christians. The fact that we belong to the New Testament church and people care about you. And people pray for you. And pre people bring meals to you. By the way, thank you to those of you who have been so busy taking meals to people that are homebound right now. I know that it's a lot. I know that it's a tough thing to do to go out of your way. But I'll tell you something. That's what family does for family. And it is the kindness of God that is being manifested. It's one of the many ways in which God enriches and blesses our lives. That's what verse 7 says. So God is so powerful that not only does he raise us from the dead, not only does he make us alive with Christ, not only does he seat us with Christ, but God in verse 7 seats you in, if you want to think of it this way, first class. You have access to blessings and privileges that nobody else would have access to if they were not in Christ. That's the grace of God. And it's not even going to stop in this life. When you leave this life, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Revelation 14, verse 13. God's going to continue to shower his grace and his blessings upon us in the next life as well. God has done that because you matter to him. Now look at verses 8 through 10, the third picture. It's a picture of salvation. A picture of salvation. What's Paul doing? He wants you and me to appreciate the power and the grace and the majesty of God. And he wants us to think about how we're not just trying down here on earth to live our little lives out and, and try to make the best of it as we can. He wants us to understand and to acknowledge the greatness and the mercy and the grace of God. Because it'll change your life when you do that. So there's a picture of salvation. What is salvation like, according to verses 8 through 10? Grace that brings salvation is sufficient. By grace you have been saved, it says in verse, tw in, uh, verse 8. Romans chapter 5 verse 20 speaks about how God's grace, as we sang earlier this morning, is greater than all of our sin. 
whatever you have done, whatever you are doing with your life right now, and you know it's wrong, and you know it offends God, and you know it's sinful, God's grace is bigger than that. The blood of Jesus can pay for that. It is sufficient. He lives and he is able to save to the uttermost. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25. God's grace is sufficient. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 verses 9 and 10. But not only is God's grace sufficient, it is undeserved. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. Luke 17, 10, Jesus told us when you've done a day's work, you've done what you're supposed to, just say at the end of the day, we're unprofitable servants because we've only done what was our responsibility to do. We're not earning anything when it comes to salvation. Nobody does. You can't. Salvation is given to people as a gift, an undeserved gift. Romans 6 verse 23. What is grace all about? It is unearned. The Bible speaks about how there's nothing that we can do to deserve the grace of God. There's nothing we can do to earn the grace of God. A lot of times when we have Bible studies with people in the religious community, they'll say, if you say that baptism is needed for salvation, what you're doing is you're attaching a work to salvation. And you're saying that if somebody doesn't work, then they're never going to be saved. Baptism is merely accepting what God offers as a gift. That's all it is. Just like the Amazon man brings the package and leaves it on your front porch, if you don't open your front door and accept what he has delivered, even if it's a gift, it's not going to be, it's not going to be appropriated by you. Somebody sends you a present. If you don't appropriate the gift... You didn't earn it by picking it up off the front porch and bring it into your house and opening it up and putting it put into use what was brought. When we're baptized, we're just accepting what God has offered freely by his grace. It's unearned. What is salvation? It is conditional. Notice there are two words in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8, by grace you have been saved through faith. Through faith. That not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. Faith is the condition. I said earlier this morning that all of us have enjoyed and appreciated the grace of God this past week in many ways. But when it comes to saving grace, when it comes to grace that saves you from your sin, not everybody's going to enjoy that. Only those who put their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 5 verse 9 is an interesting passage. You know what it says about Jesus? He is the author of eternal salvation to those who obey Him. Faith, obedience, those things are one and the same. To believe Jesus and to obey His word. If you love me, keep my commandments. Romans 4, excuse me, John chapter 14, verse 15. James 2, verse 26. Faith without works is dead. It's conditional to be accepted by faith, to be obeyed. And then notice this, as you look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, not only is grace all those things, but it's instructive. Grace is going to teach you a new way to live. When you come to Jesus Christ and you are baptized for the remission of your sins, you accept the gift that he offers. You accept that saving 
blood that he made possible on the cross, then the grace of God starts to teach you. Look at Ephesians 2 verse 10. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's interesting at the end of verse 10. We should walk in good works. Because back in verses 2 and 3 of this same chapter, it says, we used to walk according to the spirit of disobedience. We used to do things that we knew were wrong, and we enjoyed doing those things, and we got really good at doing those things. But now that we've been saved, grace instructs me that I am God's workmanship, and now I'm living a life of good works. Why? Because that's what God ordained that people who've been saved by grace are all about. Living a life that reflects the fact that God has done something in me And he's continuing to work in me and through me. And God wants all of us to be about good works. Because he prepared beforehand. He ordained beforehand that people who were saved would live different. Titus 2, 11 and 12, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously and godly in this present age the grace of God is instructive what would your life be like if you had a deeper appreciation of the grace of God what would change about your attitude what would change about your words what would change in your actions if you really understood that you matter to God What would all of us as a congregation do differently if we really appreciated the idea that God loves us? What would be different in your life if you came to Jesus Christ and accepted the grace that only He can offer? We've talked this morning about the conditions of receiving the grace of God. It's it's, it's available to everybody potentially, but it's available to no one unconditionally. The conditions are trust in Jesus because he's the one that God raised from the dead and he's the one that can raise you from the dead. Repentance of your sin. I'm not going to walk according to the course of this world. I'm not going to walk in disobedience anymore. I'm going to walk in a way that pleases God. Confession of Jesus' name and then baptism is the point at which we're buried with Christ and raised with Christ. And at that point, God seats us in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus and he is able in his kindness and in his grace and in his mercy to lavish the riches of his blessings upon us now and forevermore. If you need to respond to heaven's gracious invitation this morning, if we can help you in any way, won't you come forward while together we stand and while we sing?